watching my fellow Americans with your host, Spike Cohen. Yes! Yes, it's me! It's Spike Cohen! I did it! Keep clapping! Clap because that election is finally over! How would we know that you believe that this election was finally over if you didn't keep clapping? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to my fellow Americans, I am literally Spike Cohen. Thank you so much for taking a break from arguing on the internet about who won the election to spend this time with me. I promise to stay at least six feet away from you and not to breathe on you or touch you. We've got a fantastic show tonight. This is a Muddied Waters Media production. Be sure to sure to share this video right now. Mark Zuckerberg does not want you or anyone else to see this video. So be sure to let him know how you feel about that by sharing it far and wide. Share it. Make sure that everyone you know sees it. This is a Muddy Waters Media production. You don't want people to miss out on a Muddy Waters Media production. Give the gift of Muddy Waters today. Kids love it. Check us out on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Anchor, Twitter, Periscope, iTunes, Google Play, Float, Twitch. Check us out everywhere. Go to all of those different places. Like us. Subscribe to us. Follow us five star us if there's a bell involved hit the bell be sure to do everything you can to be involved in every single aspect of muddy waters media in every way possible that you possibly can this episode of course is brought to you by the libertarian party waffle house caucus the fastest growing waffle related caucus in not just this party but in any political party in any country in human history. This episode is also brought to you by Black Coffee, spelled B-L-V-C-K, because nothing matters anymore, and you can spell things however you want. Who cares? Nothing. This is 
this is arguably not even reality anymore. So go to blackbrews.com, B-L-V-C-K-Brews.com to get some of the most delicious cold-brewed organic coffee to ever be terribly misspelled. And be sure to use the checkout code MW for free shipping. And of course, this episode is also brought to you by Chris Reynolds, attorney at law, personal injury attorney, Chris Reynolds. If you are personally injured in Florida, then call Chris Reynolds. I forget his number. Or you can go to chrisreynoldslaw.com. His number's probably there. Or you could just, he's probably in your hospital room. He probably knows you're already hurt and he'll probably already be there. But if he's not, if he's running late or he's at someone else's hospital room, go to chrisreynoldslaw.com and be sure to check him out. Um, And the intro and outro music to this and every episode of My Fellow Americans comes from the amazing and talented Mr. Joe Davi. That's J-O-D-A-V-I. Uh, go to his Facebook, to his SoundCloud, go to joedavimusic.bandcamp.com, go to his Bandcamp, buy all of his music, buy his entire discography, it's like 25 bucks, you'll love it. I'd like to thank my house's reverse osmosis for providing me with this delicious filtered water, Bulavanaka. That is delicious water. Shout out to Tehran Turks' mom and him as always. Folks, my guest tonight is the Pfizer Pratt University Professor of Political Science at Duke University and has taught at multiple other universities as well. His articles have appeared in the American Political Science Review, the American Journal of Political Science, Public Choice, The Hill, and many others. He has published several books over the years. His body of work is insanely large, and he has won many awards for his political writing going back to before I was born. Born. His most recent article uh, with The Hill delves into the subject of Joe Jorgensen and my election results, as well as ranked choice voting. Ladies and gentlemen, my fellow Americans, please welcome to the show Professor John Aldrich. John, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. John, you have been a respected voice in politics for decades. Uh, thousands of students have paid big money to be under your direct tutelage on matters of political science, and now here you are being interviewed by a middle-aged Jew in his guest room. Thank you for coming on tonight. That's an absolute pleasure. I appreciate it. And folks, be sure to chime in with your questions and thoughts. Uh, Muddy Waters admins are standing by to tell you if you are right or wrong. So, John, before we get started on the subject of party politics, just out of curiosity, what was it that got you into uh, got you interested, uh, so interested in politics, so as to devote the bulk of your life's work to politics. What what started that? It was actually my college experience. Um, I was pr- quite uninterested in politics growing up, um, and it just turned out I went to a college that happened to have a really fine political science faculty, and they got me interested. Um, and eventually I got interested in actual politics, not just that, which we did in political science courses. That's interesting. So you actually, so it wasn't any particular, this is very, I, I you may be the first one to say this on the show. So most people, political activism happens as a result of something in their life that happened or an event that they witnessed or, you know, during the times, like if they were, uh, you know, growing up during the, the Vietnam era or the civil rights era or the, you know, uh, the LGBT rights era or, you know, anything else that, you know, that was what spurred them to action. But with you, it was actually the the academic side of it that actually led you into it. Yes. Although it is true that um, this was at the height of the Vietnam War. I turned 18 almost the same day President Johnson said, we're going to have a big draft. Um, 
oh, wow. uh, for the first time. Um, and I did get to serve um, in uh, the army and in Vietnam, but and, and was concerned all the way through about about Vietnam. That was, very, that was the sort of hot issue. The civil rights movement was mostly winding down, so right. I was a little too young for it. But but that was going on. But I but I was still very interested in, in the academic side. Um, and, um, and just, you know, somebody said, this is really fascinating stuff, convinced me. And then it turns out it's fascinating in the real world too. Yeah. It's her. Yeah. It's, it's not just interesting in in the books as well. That's, that's very interesting. It was, it, I'm someone who very much, uh, got into politics as a result of things that were happening to and around me. And it d- got me to delve into the, the philosophical side of it, uh, not so much the academic. I, I actually never went to college, but the the philosophical side of it, reading the the various political philosophers, uh, you know, throughout history, and kind of forming my own opinions as a result of that. But it was very much as a result of the the real world things that were happening. So, um, interestingly enough, you're currently teaching a course with Mike uh, Munger, who has run a few times in North Carolina as a Libertarian Party candidate. It's a small world. Yes, yes, exactly. Yes. And indeed, the first time we taught to get together with an undergraduate class, he was a Libertarian Party's candidate for governor in 2008. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I agreed to teach with him so that he would have the flexibility when his since this was a gubernatorial race. It was right. a really big one. And um, he got to do one of the televised debates and so on. And so I was able to cover for him then. And he would cover for me another, you know, uh, in compensation. That's cool. So we That's... worked together closely. I got he he ran originally in part to make sure the Libertarian Party had access to the had ballot. ballot access, yeah. And 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 testified before the state legislature, and then eventually got testified for Congress. And so I helped him, you know, proofreading and making suggestions for his testimony as well. So it's, it's been a great pairing and i'm glad we got to do it again um we had our last class uh monday morning at the end of end of the semester and just this morning we finished our writing our final uh exam for the class so that's so cool that's really cool um in your most recent article john uh does joe biden owe his win to joe jorgensen uh you delve into not coincidentally, whether or not Joe Biden and Kamala Harris won because of Joe Jorgensen and me, more specifically, whether we took votes from Trump and Pence. So what do you think? Am I almost single-handedly responsible for Joe Biden being president, being the next president? Uh, it, it's pretty close. Um, I, I, when I wrote that, the, there was still a lot of vote counting to go. Right. Um, it's now been probably 10 days since I originally wrote it. And so mm-hmm. this morning I went back to look at it. And here's my he- heavy duty calculations. No, so- yeah, this is interesting. <laughs> um, and it's still the case that um, that um, your difference considerably more than compensates for the difference between Biden and Trump votes in Arizona, Wisconsin, and Georgia, mm-hmm. and that's enough to have turned the outcome. Um, earlier, Pennsylvania was that way too, but now Pennsylvania, the counting has it's widened, yeah, added to Biden's lead, and it's now you, you came twenty five hundred votes short of that in uh, Pennsylvania. <laughs> uh, so but, it's pretty, even that's still close, right? But now the 
so the the mindset the 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 thought of the school of thought that says that we caused one side or another side to lose that would posit that the majority if not all of our voters would have voted for whoever lost right i mean it's not it's not we aren't haven't so far covered the spread that even whatever portion would be expected to have voted differently would be the difference. You're just looking at the actual just sheer number of votes, not right. I, I, I just want to make sure I'm correct in that. Yes, yes. But I did calculate what the division would have to be. If, well, so first of all, I have to assume that everybody who voted for your ticket would have voted for either Biden or Trump tickets if, if you weren't there. Right. Um, and so that's not necessarily the case. It could very well be that some people looked and said, I can't vote for either one of those two jokers and and said, is there something else I can do? And, and saw uh, Joe and you um, and decided to go ahead. That's a possibility. Right. You can't rule that out. Um, the uh, the then is a question how you divide it. If you're going to if it's, it turns out there there is no state that I could find that your vote, if it all went to Biden, would have made him win that state. So there's none of those. So it's all. It's all whether or not it would have caught. Co- it ended up costing Trump. Trump. Okay. And um, and and so the so the split um, in Arizona, you only needed to go sixty forty uh, for Trump. Okay. Uh, to give him enough to well to tie, but you know to. To, to give him the edge, uh, Georgia at 61% um, and um, in Wisconsin, it's a little bit more at 76. So that okay. would be a harder, harder imaginable division. Um, but the other ones are with, well within range. I mean, certainly if we were looking at um, votes between Biden and Trump from the mail-in ballots, they were going, you know, 70, 80% to, to Biden. So yeah. it's imaginable. It's quite imaginable that your your split could have been enough to have have moved over. We don't know, of course, how many how many people would have voted if you didn't vote for you would have voted for Trump instead, or would have voted for Biden, the or just norm, not or just not voted, yeah, or just not voted at all, right? Yeah. So right. what what we have, uh, so what we do, we don't have exit polling yet from 2020 that I understand for, of, 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 uh, Jorgensen voters or even th- third party voters, but we do have from 2016, there was a CBS exit poll of Gary Johnson voters, um, that showed that had a libertarian part, had a libertarian not been on the ballot, um, 25% would have voted for Hillary, uh, 15% would have voted for Donald Trump. Uh, but 55% said that they wouldn't have voted at all. Now, yeah. that's what they said they would have done. We don't know for certain, obviously, that they would have done that. But the fact that a a solid majority said that they wouldn't vote, I can also tell you that anecdotally, I just finished campaigning in 35 states. I talked personally one-on-one with thousands of people. We were trying to estimate it was probably close to 10,000, or it was probably close to 15,000 people, but well over 10,000 people the vast majority of whom, if they brought it up, said that they wouldn't have dreamt of voting for either of the Republicans. Now, obviously, this is a sample size of people who wanted to come out to meet me. Um, but I kind of have to think that at least a decent majority of libertarian voters 
if the, a libertarian hadn't been on the ballot, would have either maybe voted for another third party or just not voted at all. Do we have? Do you know if there's any other data that would either support or refute that? Right. Yeah. Not yet. Okay. Um, that's not the case yet. I I wanted to get this out. Uh, we, we. I mean, at some point there we'll be able to actually get the polls and be able right. to analyze them. But right now uh, we can just look at whatever is reported on in newspapers or whatever. Um, so we don't have that yet. We will. Um, I. It, it's very likely that's the case. Um, the thing that makes 2016 somewhat different from 2020 is that um, uh, Clinton and Trump together were the two least liked candidates by a right. huge amount. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Biden was not so so much, and of course, a lot of people had come to a comfort level with Trump, but most of them would have voted for him. So I think you're. I think it's quite possible that abstention would have been quite common. Um, the other third-party candidates might have gotten some vote, but it would have been, you know, uh, sort of widely uninformed, probably because people didn't know much about the constitution. There's, party. there's a quite a bit of a difference between the Libertarian Party and the Green Party, right? Right, right. But, we, but yeah, I had, this, a, I had many this time people. There was no real serious Green Party running as there was in 2016 with with jill stein um so. it wasn't as well financed or well well uh, materialized that's certainly true one thing yeah and and like you said we don't have the data from from this year and obviously what i heard anecdotally was from a self-selected group of people that not only were supporting us but were actually making a point of coming to see me at an event or see joe at one of her events so obviously that's a little bit different but i i, I will say i part of the reason why i i tend to um uh bristle at the idea that we stole the vote from one or another not just that the data tends to support the idea that a good number, if not most of our voters, uh, of our supporters wouldn't vote for someone else, but also the fact that it lends into the idea that people's votes belong to one of the two major parties. And it just really bothers me that idea that, you know, we either have to vote Republican or we have to vote Democrat, because not only is that does that take away the whole Democratic concept of our vote being wherever we want to put it, but it also incentivizes the two major parties to do whatever they want because they already own our vote to begin with. Do you see what I mean? Yep. Yep. Yes. Yes. Um, this is the, this is a very important thing. I mean, I actually like the idea of there being several significant, whatever that turns out to be, uh, right. third and fourth parties running um, as a really good reminder that you know exactly that that that. Um, if you dislike the two major parties, there are options yep. for expressing preferences and actually making a preference. That's that's rather than staying home. I mean, staying home is just, just it, it says you're you're turned off in some way, either because you don't know anything about what's going on and pay no attention, or because you just can't stand um, uh, those. In, in political science jargon, that's abstention due to indifference and due to alienation right but it would be really nice if there's a signal out to the major parties that the here people really want to vote for them even in an era when the difference between the democrats and republicans is so deep and so intense there are still people looking for new new options so i would actually argue that the difference 
the different there are two different differences. One is the difference in uh in messaging and narrative and and uh um uh the nomenclature and the wording that they're using the 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 rhetoric between the two parties but in terms of policy they're actually getting closer and closer but that's i mean that's a it's a distinction there it's more of an argument there but go ahead yeah so so one of the things that i find really uh interesting about the libertarian party is that issue positions you know could draw people from either party yeah Um, you know on social issues you have what we commonly referred to as liberal positions right right and on often economic issues that we tend to be conservative positions in the picture and you have both yeah. and th- this means there's a, a, a genuine difference between libertarian policy platform and that of the republicans and the democrats and that's what's an, the important message not just that there's some you know some somebody who's willing to pay the money to get on the ballots and do the hard work to get on the ballots but there's also a real choice oh of course a, yeah a different yeah. way of con- conceptualizing the problems facing the country today and how they how they may be solved right exactly the way i put it is we're not running to be a lesser of three evils instead of two <laughs> or just be another voice to vote for we're running to be a completely different way of looking at how government and the people that it, it that are under its jurisdiction should, should interact with one another so towards the end of your article you talk about how we could avoid this you know wasted vote talk or this you know idea of having to choose a lesser evil uh, with one real simple change to how we vote, which is ranked choice voting, uh, commonly also known as instant runoff. And in your words, you said in this voting method, every state would be decided by a real majority. Uh, ranked choice voting is currently in use in Maine uh, and many uh, counties and metro areas across the U.S., as well as in the United Kingdom and Australia and Ireland and a few other countries. But talk to us about how ranked choice voting works and why you think it would be helpful in, in this regard. Right. So, so the first, so the, the way it works is that if you have three, as a, as in, for, for me in North Carolina, I have four, I think, uh, mm-hmm. names on the ballot. I would list them as this is my first choice, this is my second, this is my third, this is my fourth. And um, if my first choice is at the top, that's fine, um, and my vote goes stays with that person mm-hmm. if however i voted for the third party candidate that wasn't very strong they take they recalculate my vote and give it to my second choice recalculate what the vote is across the state and if anybody has a majority we're done you know and you keep narrowing it down until you're if if it happens to get to that point uh, there's just two candidates left, but it goes just from what my, what I said from the first time. This is my first. This is my second. This is my third choice. If my third first choice can't win, go to my second. If my second, go to my third, and, and otherwise, I'm done. So, assuming no one gets a straight up majority in the first round, with each round they take off whoever the lowest vote getter is, and whoever their second, whoever they voted for them is number one. Whoever their second and third picks that go out that based on that and go to that next person, and if there's still not another majority, then the next one's taken off until eventually you get that majority. Now, presumably, if for example, I if I if I were voting ranked choice and I saw my choices, I'd probably still just pick libertarian and not pick anyone else. Which means that if we don't win or we don't make it up to the top ones, when my vote gets 
gets eliminated, it just gets eliminated, which means it's no longer being counted in the majority. So in that way, like you said, not only do we actually get a true majority, but it does away with the idea of, well, you can't vote for Joe Jorgensen. You can't vote libertarian because if you do that, then Donald Trump's going to win or Joe Biden's going to win, which if you're a libertarian, you probably don't even care whether Trump or Biden win. You want the libertarian to win. But it, it does away. If you have a second choice, you can choose that. And for anyone who's giving you a hard time about it, you can say, no, I can choose them secondly. Right. 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 What I think will happen fairly quickly if we were to in, in, uh, uh, to initiate that is kind of what happened in Maine is that there were, you know, a small increase in the number of serious contenders for, for office. In Maine, they typically come out as independent yeah. uh, candidates for governor or senator. Um, and something like that would happen fairly quickly, or or a Libertarian Party or a Green Party would would elevate us. So, so we have these. We actually have more, somewhat more choices, more prominent. And if I vote for the one I really like first. I'll send a message to the even if I decide to uh, I'm willing to tolerate one of one of the other major parties. Yeah, I'll send a message. This is what I really want. Yeah, what you you know what you're doing is not as good. It's okay, but it's not as good. Um, and so we'll be we would be sending with our votes in this fashion uh, uh, a more resounding level of support of what we really want to do and what we find acceptable. And by doing that and allowing for there to be, as you put it, more signals coming from people and a, more of a level of accountability of, of the people that are in office or are in the more well-funded or established parties, anytime there's more competition for something, typically all of the actors have to be more accountable, provide more value to the people that they're trying to provide their service. People voting, running in an election are, is no different. If there's only two choices, you know, the, the, the big extreme is in like a one party system where it's essentially you're rubber stamping the person that's in there and they know that they don't have any other option. A two party system isn't much better. I guess it's a little bit better, but eventually they can just concrete themselves as cement themselves as the only two options. But if there's multiple options, a plurality to choose from now, they're going to be held more accountable. So it's it's good in that way. So your uh, your body of work is focused on essentially what leads people to vote or not vote the way that they do. I, I actually have two questions uh, that I get commonly asked. Uh, I have my answers for them, but I you know you're a professor of political science, so I'm interested to hear your thoughts on them. Uh, and they kind of lead into what what your article was about. But I, I, I'm interested in your thoughts on this. Uh, the first one I've been asked countless times: Why is the U.S. so heavily entrenched? in the two-party system when most other countries have multiple major parties? I, I have some thoughts of my own on this, but I, I'd love to hear yours as well. Right. So, so there's two parts of the answer from a political scientist point of view. The first part is that countries, the extreme would be some place like Israel, has a very open plural, sorry, proportional representation system where um, the idea is that uh, the seats in the Knesset, that's their equivalent of their Congress, yep. the seats in their parliament, the Knesset, mm -hmm. uh, are allocated about as close as you can do to the same percentage of the vote you receive in the in the election. Um, and so if you get 10% of the vote, you should get 10% of the seats. You probably won't get quite that, but it'd be pretty close. So, so that's proportional representation type systems are quite common, particularly in continental Europe. Um, uh, and um, 
Then there's the so-called Anglo-American democracies, the UK, us, Canada, Australia, so forth. Um, and we have what are known as single member districts. We have one member of Congress. We vote for that member right, of Congress. Right. Um, so that has a tendency to get people to support one of the top two parties and, and kind of generates a two party system going in that direction. The second thing that makes us different from even the other places like Canada, the UK, which have had, you know, multiple parties making significant inroads into the elections, uh, recent elections, is that we, we vote for many more offices than almost all other countries. Uh, and so we have this huge long array of offices that we vote vote on it, you know, more or less simultaneously um, um, every couple of years. As a result, people who want to enter public service, elected office as a career, they can they can start at the bottom, county commissioners, town right, councilors, right, right. and build their way up. Well, if they're thinking about having a long, happy career in elected politics, they can see that you should ha they have to be a member of the republicans or the democrats if they're going to go a long career all the way up the up the, up the chain up to you know congress senate governor right 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 so it's this combination of you know limiting ourselves to voting you know one seat at a time with this putting in the what was called ambition theory but it's basically kind of climbing the ladder of success uh, is this much more likely to do so if you have uh, if you enter one of the main parties? Otherwise, you're not going to be able to. If if you've if you've got a party machine apparatus behind you to work your way from, and especially when the cost of running in those races is so high, yes. If you're trying to run yourself for a job that might not even pay, and you have or or pays you know like you know twenty thirty thousand a year or whatever forty thousand a year, and you have to spend you know. A few hundred thousand dollars to get the job. The fact that the, I see, I never thought of that. One one other aspect is that we have some of the tightest, uh, at least compared to say Canada and some of these other countries, we have some of the tightest ballot access laws that have been ratcheted up by. There's one thing that Republicans and Democrats always agree on is that try to keep everyone else out. But I never thought of that. That the fact that there's just so many things that people are running for, which means you in theory anyway, unless you're already established or famous or prominent in your own right, you have to start off as like dog catcher to work your way up to governor, president, senator, congressman, you know, state senate, whatever you want to run for, whatever your your ultimate goal or ability is. And that lends itself to machine politics to work your way up through the machine. That's very exactly, interesting. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. If I may, the political historian yeah. in me has to say that in the, in the 1840s, Britain and the United States faced a, uh, a, a decision. Um, and we had a choice of whether we did single member districts or not. Okay. And after the 1840 election and, and the census, we passed a law that said Congress will ordinarily be elected by single member districts. Before then, they weren't elected that way. Um, a significant number, a quarter of the 1840 Congress was elected in multi-member districts. A, akin to what happens in Israel, maybe not quite that extreme, but akin right. to that. What that, the reason that's important is that started us on the path towards this two-party system. And, um, and, and there's basically a duopoly. Yeah. Uh, 
two parties say, how can we put ourselves in a position where it's just us? Yeah. I don't have to worry about anybody else. I'll have one guy, one woman on the other on the other party. Keep all this, all this, you know, uh, all this third party stuff out of the out of the way, um, and uh, we can work together. We can limit ballot access. We can make it hard to to register. I mean, all the kind of stuff yeah, all the stuff they're doing now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so, uh, so that's the consequence of single member uh, of having district. a two party system, but it. It just cements itself in power. That's well, yeah. And as all things do, this is all we're all just talking about the reality of power. If you distill it down to its to its ultimate form, but so I knew that ballot access restrictions started in the start. I think eighteen eighty. That's when, in earnest, the ballot access restrictions started ultimately getting kind of coming to their exclusive form or conclusive form in at the federal level in the 1950s. But you're saying it actually started in the 1840s or 1840 with the choice to move to single district exclusive, which then allowed for the duopoly to that to be created. Very, very interesting. Okay. All right. Well, that's very interesting. So then my second question to you, um, this kind of comes out of a debate that's happening within the Libertarian Party on who we should be primarily reaching out to. You know, we're facing a bit of an existential crisis where, you know, uh, you know, we hit this 3% and then we were back to 1.2%. And it seems to be mostly as a result of factors that have nothing to do with our party. It's all stuff like, you know, is it an incumbent year? Is it a, you know, uh, you know, the, the pandemic and the lockdowns and things like that, things that really had nothing to do with us or our candidates or our policies, but a bunch of external factors. And so we recognize that in order to be able to actually become a viable contender, we need to rapidly grow our party. And so there's, you know, been a debate on who we should be primarily reaching out to, what our main focus should be. Traditionally, the debate has been whether we should be reaching out to the left or the right primarily, whereas I and many of the newest generation of of libertarians are arguing that we should be primarily messaging to people who typically don't even vote because they recognize it's a waste of time voting Republican or Democrat, which means we don't have to do the whole, you know, most of the time when we're uh, talking with people on, on the street or, or, or messaging to them, they say, well, your ideas sound good, but we have to stop Joe Biden or we have to stop Donald Trump. The non-voters don't even care about all that. They already recognize that's a, not a, that that's a waste of time. Uh, so we tend to think, you know, we get rid of the lesser evil mindset. When we argue this, we're told by others that messaging to people who typically don't vote is a waste of time because they don't vote. We argue that they don't vote because no one's reaching out to them in a way that connects to them. So what are your thoughts to this? You mentioned uh, uh, abstention by, uh, uh, what were your words, by alienation or by, um, uh, yeah, indifference. So what are your thoughts? Is it primarily that people aren't voting just because they don't care or couldn't be bothered? Or is there enough of them that their vote's actually as gettable as anyone else's, but no one's really reaching them in a way that connects with them? So this is this has been an ongoing debate within our discipline, and there's disagreement. Okay. So, okay. so here's my here's my take. If you look at we we may have just set a what a century long record for turnout at sixty six percent of the yeah. voting eligible population, something in that order. Yeah, um, um, that puts us up near the bottom of European elections. Right, 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 right. So. Um, so somehow or other, most other countries that are at all comparable to us um, have figured out a way to get a lot more participation, 75, 80, 85%. There, in the 19th century, even though we had, of course, a much smaller electorate, 
um, it was still a it was still a fairly broad definition of, of uh, once we got rid of land owning uh, property owning uh, requirements. It's still a right. pretty broad definition, and we were up in that that same range. That eighteen forty election um, was up around eighty something percent. Right, right, on. yeah. So we used to be there. Other advanced uh, democracies are there. We still have room to grow. So that would suggest that even if there are a bunch of people who you just can't get to to, to turn out, right, right, there's still a lot of left to to gather. I mean, if you went from as a as a party from the three percent to ten percent, right that contest would draw so much attention. Look how well they did. What I don't know what they did, but they did something yep, that yep, made a yep. big difference. And you would have the you would have a base from which to build a platform to move further up. Yep. At some point if you wanted to become one of the, you know, a truly major party where you're actually uh, seriously a candidate your candidates are serious contestants for governors or, or, or presidencies. Right, right. You're going to need to draw from the uh, existing parties. Oh, of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. But but there's still room there, um, even for, you know, relatively apathetic Americans uh, to uh, to turn out. Yeah, and turn out. Exactly. And and my theory is that if we get enough of those people that typically don't vote, where we get that start polling in the 10, 15, 20 percent range, we're going to start peeling off a lot of people that the only reason they're not supporting us is because of the wasted vote fallacy or the lesser evil yeah. fallacy that if the, if, if they go, Oh wow, they actually have a chance of winning. Okay. I'll support them. Now we saw that in, uh, in, in two races this year with uh, Donald Rainwater and Ricky Harrington in their races where they got enough of a broad base of support where they started peeling off votes from the other parties as well with Ricky Harrington. Uh, he actually ended up getting uh, almost 40% of the vote in his race. Uh, as a result yeah. of, of 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 enough voters realizing, oh wow, he actually has a shot. So okay, so so a our 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 voting numbers are still even at this record high that we have, or century high that we have, and, and especially when you factor in that usually it's it's almost fifty fifty in terms of who votes and who doesn't vote. When you compare that to most other countries where it's in the seventies and eighties, that means that in theory there should be many more people that are interested in voter voting. And you could argue that there's at least some correlation between having a lack of choices or viable choices and people not participating that a third party could potentially reach them. So, okay, I'm taking that to to mean obviously you can't, you know, uh, you're not going to vouch for one side of that argument or the other in terms of what the party should be doing. But I would take that to mean at least that that these aren't unreachable people. Would that be safe to say? Yeah, and and I wouldn't think that that one strategy your party doesn't want to have one mobilization strategy. No, of course. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So the, 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 you know, if I were to, to, so here's the, here's the thing that's a puzzle that we haven't unresolved in, in academia and presumably uh, really clear in the real world in the United And this is where I'd look for, for lessons in the United Kingdom, the liberal party, which used to be the liberal party used to be the major party, uh, along with the conservatives uh, in Britain, has been the the third party in yep. Britain for a very long time. Um, it consistently got 10, 12, 
and, and sometimes higher, 18% of the vote election after election, it changed names, became the Liberal Democratic Party, yep, um, yep. and eventually fell apart, but it, it went 50, 70, 80 years um, as a significant force uh, in, in, in British politics. Uh, and how did they do that in a single member system that tends to breed two partyism? Um, and that's where I would suggest that you, you know, you try to think through what it is that they were able to do to keep people supporting them over a very long period of time without becoming, you know, part of the, the government, without becoming prime minister or getting the defense ministry or, you know, change with the exchequer or whatever. That's an interesting point to, to look into. Another one that I look into as well is in Canada, where you've had essentially three main parties, and then there's the 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 um, the, the Parti Quebecois, which is just in Quebec and just basically a single issue party. But you've got the uh, the Conservatives or the Tories, which have reformed a few different times. But basically, the Conservative Party. Uh, then you've got the Liberal Party, uh, and then you've got the uh, New Democratic Party. Uh, and uh, they have jockeyed for those top three positions pretty competitively over the course of the years. It's usually either the conservatives or the liberals, but there have been times that the uh, NDP has actually been in control of government, and there have been multiple times where the NDP was the was the second party. Um, so, kind of deconstructing or reverse engineering messaging, you know, which another country that's a single party district and try to figure out how their messaging worked here as well. So that's a very interesting thing. So, um, John, Professor Aldrich, I, it was fantastic having you on and it was great talking to you about these things. Before we sign off, I want to give you a chance to give any final thoughts that you didn't have a chance to say already. Whatever you feel like saying, uh, John Aldrich, the floor is yours. Okay, so one more, one more thing on, on uh, ways of thinking about it. So one of the reasons the NDP party was able to become a third party that, of, of durability um, is that they have a, ge- a geographic region that they can, can hold. Okay. Um, whereas the liberal liberals and liberal Democrats in, in uh, Britain didn't. Um, and so uh, an alternative strategy is to find some place, um, uh, possibly the, in, in Rocky Mountain states, um, where you can get a, a firm base um, uh, to, to build on along with other strategies. So that, that's my, that's, that's my uh, academic advice that's worth probably just about as much as you're paying me for this. No. Um, <laughs> how did you know how yeah. much I'm paying you for this? No, I, uh, uh, so, but this is actually a good advice. We actually have something called the, uh, the frontier project where we are targeting mountain West states that, uh, and, 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 and state, uh, state legislative districts that are heavily libertarian. Uh, and it's, it actually, uh, bore fruit in this last, uh, cycle. We, we had some wins there and similar strategies that weren't part of that exact project, but similar strategies of, of going for, you know, libertarian friendly districts, finding good candidates that are, you know, locally that are, you know, you know, well-known in the community and, and messaging, you know, in a way that, that hits that direct district where we can competitively, competitively race against them. So there's, there's definitely a theory there. 
Again, this is where ballot access laws come in. We're required, in order to be able to keep ballot access in many states, we have to run a national ticket, right? Like we have to run for president and vice president, which I think we should anyway, but we have to run and get a certain percent for them to even get on the ballot, so for them to even be allowed to have parties on the ballot. But it does kind of lend itself to the idea that outside of that, we should be kind of hyper-focusing. So, well, John, it was fantastic. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I have one more minute. Go ahead. Go ahead. I personally am not a libertarian per se. Okay. Lots of good things about it. I'm not a libertarian, but I think our country would be so much better if we had a libertarian uh, and a couple of other voices uh, in our political system, in elections, uh, and in office. um, So that there's somebody in Congress saying, you know, don't forget this, don't forget that. So, so, so I'm all for strengthening um, um, you know, responsible, serious contenders for, for uh, political parties. Uh, I think it's going to improve America, whether I support them individually or not. Right. Just the idea of having multiple choices, not just having two effect. And, and, and what ends up happening so often, and there's a whole, I mean, we could do a whole episode about this. The fact that the two parties then agree to divvy up and say, okay, we won't run there. You don't run here, which is why we have so many unopposed districts um, where you end up with a one party system in so many states and, and, and regions around the country, because the two parties say, Hey, you don't come into my area. I won't come into your area. And it's like, it's like a car. It's, it's how cartels work where, you know, one step away from a monopoly is a bunch of cartels just deciding to divvy up, you know, where they, you know, where their non-compete areas are. And, and that's what we increasingly have here. So yeah, I know I, it obviously from a partisan and philosophical mindset, I want libertarians to win, but I also want the green party to do well, even though I'm diametrically opposed to a lot of what they want because I think that we need more choices. I think that everyone needs to have, even if they're you know part of a specific political mindset, they need to have a myriad of choices to choose from and know that they're viable. And I think ranked choice is a great way to be able to do that, where people can do that and still not feel like they're throwing their vote away or whatever else, which the perception becomes the reality. If more people can vote based on what they actually want as opposed to what they're most afraid of, then that allows for there to be more choices. But John, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for coming on again. And uh, hopefully we get to have you on again soon. I I really appreciate your time. Thank you. I appreciate uh, being asked. Folks, thanks again for tuning in to this amazing episode of My Fellow Americans. I hope you were as uh, educated and informed as I was. That was actually pretty cool. I I learned a lot of stuff today. Um, Be sure to tune in tomorrow, uh, Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern where I will be doing my third edition of Spike Cohen's Culture of Winning, where I talk to uh, recently elected and re-elected libertarian candidates to find out how they won and how you and other libertarians across the country can win in your elections as well. I will be speaking with Bob Carwin, who was recently uh, elected as a libertarian, uh, so be sure to tune in tomorrow. Uh, On Friday, I believe that Jason Lyon is doing another episode of uh, Mr. America, The Bearded Truth uh, on Muddy Waters Media this Friday. Uh, and then on uh, Monday, next Monday, I will be doing another episode of Culture of Winning, and I will be interviewing Brian Holtz. Brian Holtz I will be interviewing, uh, and then be sure to tune in uh, next Tuesday for the Muddy Waters of Freedom, where Matt Wright and I parse through the week's events like the sweet little autumn cherubim that we are, and then uh, tune in again next week, Wednesday, 
at 8 p.m. Eastern for the next episode of My Fellow Americans. Folks, I'm Spike Cohen. You are the power. And thanks again for tuning in. God bless, guys.